The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the second chapter. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn man designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of every people, a light to reveal you to the nations, the glory of your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul also. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Israel. When they had finished everything that was required by the law, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord. Christ. In my baby book, tucked in saran wrap and stuck to the page with yellow cellophane tape are the brown, fragile remains of a rose. From the age of two, I can remember sitting on my mother's lap and touching the saran wrap and feeling the rough crunchiness under my fingertip and mama telling me about the rose. It was on the altar the day you were baptized, she told me. 
there was a photo on the page of me being held in the arms of my parents. I was a year old because they had waited until the, I mean, until the adoption was final before having me baptized. I didn't know what baptism was yet at two. The word didn't have any meaning for me, but I picked up on the reverence. What I understood was that my parents had dressed me up for a very special occasion and taken me to a place where there were other people and I was claimed by God. And that rose had borne witness to what I could not myself remember. Baptism, christening, is what parents of faith do for their children. Families carefully unwrap baptismal gowns, maybe worn by a great-grandparent, and handed down through the generations some long white dress, probably handmade, tucked away in boxes and tissue paper until the next birth. We put a rose on the altar. Sometimes the roses are artificial. I personally kind of like the live ones. My home congregation made a sign. I'll never forget it. Uh, it was a big plywood sign that could set up in the churchyard and it, it had a rainbow with two big puffy clouds on either side of the rainbow and the words across the top of the rainbow said, God's newest blessing. And there was a place for a little red heart to hang down at the bottom under the rainbow and it bore the name and the birth date and I think, you know, by height and weight of the newest child in the congregation. And it was up from the time of the birth until the baptism. And then on the day of the baptism, you got the red heart to take home and hang on the wall of the nursery. Some people approach baptism or christening as though it were simply a rite of passage for newborn children and their parents. Another family photo op, we used to call them Kodak moments. Others approach it with superstition hedging their bets as though baptism were just kind of a good luck charm, you know, a talisman, a kind of water magic that might ensure that the child will live a long and prosperous life. But baptism is really an acknowledgement that our children do not belong to us. Our children belong to God. They are children of God, which God has entrusted to us to love and care for. But our children do not belong to us. Their lives do not belong to us. Their lives are not our lives. They are not destined to live out our dreams or our hopes for them. They are not destined or required to stand in somehow for our accomplishments or lack thereof. And when we bring them to God's house and we have them baptized in the name of the triune God, and blessed by this community as a child of God, we are following Jesus's command to be baptized and have our household baptized. And we are acknowledging that this child is not ours, but God's. Mary and Joseph were devout Jewish people, obedient to the law of God. When Jesus was eight days old, they had him circumcised as a sign that he was born into the covenant that God had made with their ancestor Abraham and with all of his descendants after him. 
that God would bless them and care for them as God's people. Then they had to wait the prescribed number of days of purification before Mary could travel with her husband to the temple. According to the 12th chapter of Leviticus, after a woman had given birth, she was ritually unclean. Giving birth was a holy experience, but to be able to be in the presence of God again, she had to be declared clean and holy and fit um, to be in God's presence. Anytime there was a, a spilling of blood, it made whoever touched the blood unclean, whether it was from a wound or from any other reason. So there was a ritual to restore this holy cleanliness. If the woman had borne a son, she had to wait 33 days after his birth and then bring an offering to the temple and give it to the priest. And the priest would offer it as a sacrifice and that would affect her purification before God. If she had a daughter, she had to wait 66 days. The law required her to present a lamb and then either a turtle dove or a pigeon. One was a sin offering and the other a burnt offering. But if the family were poor and could not spare a lamb or could not afford one at all, then they could bring two pigeons or two turtle doves, one representing the lamb. The second requirement under the law was the dedication of the firstborn male child. Because God had taken possession of every male firstborn in all of Israel during the Passover, at the time of the Exodus, when God passed over and claimed the lives of all the firstborn of Egypt, the firstborn therefore had to be bought back or redeemed from God. And Exodus 13 states that every firstborn male which opens the womb, human or animal, belongs to the Lord. Clean animals would be sacrificed. Firstborn sons must be redeemed. The family in some places paid five shekels of silver to the priesthood. But there was another tradition in Numbers as well that said that the tribe of the Levites took the place of the firstborn sons of Israel as the Lord's possession. And so they had to serve as priests and it was through them that the firstborn was redeemed. So the firstborn son belonged to God, to the Lord in a special way and is dedicated to the service of the Lord. So a month after Jesus's birth, Mary and Joseph make the journey from Nazareth back down to Jerusalem to the temple. They enter it with their firstborn son, dedicating him to God in the same way their ancestors, Hannah and Elkanah, had dedicated their firstborn Samuel to the Lord so many generations before. The two turtle doves they offer are the sacrifices for the poor. Jesus' family are poor. When Jesus talks about the poor and about God's love for the poor, he is speaking from his own personal experience. Throughout his life, he speaks up for and honors those who are poor, the outcast, the disrespected, for theirs is the kingdom of God, he says. Today, Jews celebrate the birth of a child with a baby naming ceremony. Boys still have a breast, but girls have a baby naming ceremony. It's marked with prayers and songs and food, and I got to participate in one this year via Zoom for a new niece of mine. The child gets welcomed into the covenant community of faith who recite these words. As he, she has been welcomed into the covenant, 
So may he or she grow into the life of Torah, marriage, and good deeds. Elijah, the famous prophet, gets welcome to the celebration too, linking each new birth to the renewal of the hope, the messianic hope of the messianic age to come, which is the same hope which was reflected in the proclamations of Simeon and Anna on the day of Jesus' dedication. Simeon is late in years. We're told he goes to the temple every single day. He's a man of great faith who has spent his entire life watching for the fulfillment of God's promise of becoming Messiah, the consolation of Israel. Anna is a widow. She's also the only one called a prophet. She's in her 80s. She's poor, living in the temple day and night, offering prayers continually. These two wise elders take one look at the infant Jesus lying in Mary's arms, and they break out in hymns of praise. In him they see the hope of Israel fulfilled, the long-awaited Savior. The Holy Spirit has put this on their hearts. They declare it in Simeon's song, the Nunc Dimittis, which we used to traditionally sing after communion. Lord, now you let your servant go in peace. Your word has been fulfilled. My own eyes have seen the salvation which you have prepared in the sight of every people. A light to reveal you to the nations and the glory of your people, Israel. People with the most insight, the most bold imagination in scripture are not the young. They are not the middle-aged. We always think, oh, you need young people and middle-aged people to be visionaries. No, in scripture, the most insight, the most imagination, the most boldness is in the faithful elders. The visionaries are the wise ones with eyes of faith who see what God is doing and declare it to the rest of us. Faithful people who tell us who we are and what we are destined to become to declare us holy, who see in us the hand of God at work, who tell us that we have a part to play in God's holy purpose. Over the years in congregations, I have seen it time and again, children who were labeled, you know, problems, disruptive, disobedient, difficult, Children for whom the community outside the church, maybe even some inside, prophesied this child is going to come to no good, nothing but trouble down the road. But then there were always those wise ones who looked at those children and said, no, child of God, spirited, gifted, good, and who those children then lived out the fulfillment of those words of blessing in their lives. The community shaped their life so that they did reflect God's purposes. Jesus grew up in a community of faith too, blessed by wise elders, by people of faith who, and who told his parents and told him all his life long what they saw, his God-given gifts, his destiny as the Son of God. Being claimed by God does not secure us from suffering. It doesn't mean prosperity. He will bring 
the falling and the rising of many, Simeon said. He will be a stumbling block, and a sword will pierce your own heart also. But claimed by God, the suffering is used for good. Claimed by God, the sorrow gives way to life. And a baby named Jesus, the one redeemed by two turtle doves, becomes the redeemer of the world. Amen.